Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And we are going to talk about three big legal topics uh, this week, Connor. Of course, I think story number one will be the upcoming hearing on the Supreme Court nominee, Judge Jackson. And uh, President Biden has got to feel pretty optimistic, I think, about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the fact that uh, the nominee has already been approved three times by the Senate uh, bodes well for her. But will it be smooth sailing or choppy waters? We'll get into that question. Secondly, uh, we're going to talk about whether we should stop asking jurors about really private stuff. You know, in the uh, Giselle or Ghislaine, that is, Maxwell case. Uh, where she was recently convicted, it turns out uh, one and maybe two jurors perhaps uh, weren't completely accurate in their answers to questions about past sexual abuse. So juror privacy is on the docket. And finally, we're going to talk about the ongoing, never-ending fight over corporate board quotas. Should state legislatures, California included, be passing laws requiring corporate board members to be people of color, underrepresented groups, uh, females. So we're going to get into all of those issues. But uh, before we get to those, a little preview of our two features. One, guess the verdict. America's favorite game show. Connor's going to guess the outcome of a real live legal case. And I'll just tease it here, Connor. It's the case of the sinister schnauzer. Hmm. So we'll just see. Uh, if you're able to well, I'm a dog uh, prognosticate, person. well, see, so you have an advantage already. Big leg up. And our final feature, pretty new. We've only done this couple of weeks. It's called Stories I'd Tell My Friends If I Had Any. To clarify, I have several stories. And today, um, I'll be sharing my experience learning ping pong from a champion. Nice. So if anybody is interested in that, they can uh, stick around to the very end of the podcast. So before we get to uh, the Supreme Court hearing coming up, uh, a couple of human interest items. Um, I think I personally have a lawsuit, Connor, uh, for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Oh, yeah. We're going to get rich off this for sure. You know what a big fan I am of Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. Huge I, fan. World-class fan. I didn't see every episode as the seasons went by, but now during the pandemic, I've been catching up. And so sure. I'm pretty close to getting to the, the new current season. And um, here's my beef. I was so excited two or three weeks ago to see that they were coming out, HBO was coming out, with a documentary all about Larry David, The Larry David Show. Wow. In his own words. He would be interviewed by some colleagues and so on. Wow. How what have a, I not heard of this? What a treat. Well, I see yeah. he's a hardcore fan. Yeah. So they're advertising it. It's in the newspaper. You know, it's going to drop on like Monday two weeks ago. And guess what? The day before it was to be released, start streaming. They announced, oh, um, we're not going to be doing it after all. What? Larry's not satisfied with the project. He, he wants to... The day before? The day before. Yeah. He wants to tinker with it. He wants to do it before a live audience first. Who knows what kind of... Ridiculous. It was like an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, wow. essentially. Yeah. So I... Have, Talking about leaving you in the lurch. I can't believe that they would spend all that money on the advertising. I know. I know. Maybe, maybe they... they judged that they were going to lose money on it somehow, that it wasn't going to generate the buzz that they wanted it to generate, that they thought 
they will try again. Maybe the con- okay, maybe maybe the content of the thing is not good, and the, and they're telling the truth, and Larry wants to fix it. But maybe they just realized that it was the wrong moment somehow. You know, I Connor, don't know. All good theories, but I don't really care because I only care about my case for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? I'll yeah, try if it. I, for if you. I walked into Absolutely. your office, so yeah. w- would you say sure? I'm, I'm not busy this month. I'm I'm a, I'd represent you. I'm a different kind of lawyer than that, but I'll make an exception <laughs> for you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So. Uh, Maybe Larry will tinker with the project and we'll see it down the road. Uh, The other item this week, uh, Jussie Smollett, free at last, at least for the time being. Uh, If you've been following the Jussie Smollett drama, you know that an uh, Illinois appellate court ruled just a few days ago that the actor uh, should be released from jail on bond pending his appeal of his conviction for falsely reporting that he had been the victim of a hate crime. The judge gave him five months in jail, plus you know, $120,000 fine for uh, disrupting uh, Chicago's finest and another, another penalty. Smollett's lawyers had argued in court papers that the sentence should be stayed because his term of five months would almost certainly be finished in the books before his appeal was completed and that being incarcerated threatened his health and safety so he is out of jail what do you think connor uh, do you think that a little special treatment here celebrity justice i mean the presumption is most people have to sit in jail or prison pending the outcome of their right. appeal uh, oftentimes if the court of appeal or court of appeals depending on which system is convinced that a really heavy duty appellate argument is being made they will make an exception and say okay the guy may remain free pending the appeal but i don't know that that's what was going on here yeah it Overall, it's just rare to have a sentence, an actual incarceration sentence as short as five months in a case where then they go up on appeal to try to say he shouldn't have to serve that time behind bars. So it does seem like celebrity justice. It does seem like uh, he's getting cut some slack. But at the same time, when you only uh, sentence somebody to five months, it's okay for that group of people, the people who might serve their entire sentence while waiting for a chance to, on appeal, avoid their sentence. It's okay to go easier on them in theory, in the big picture, because you're going easy on people who have shorter prison sentences. So you presumably think these people have done less wrong to earn a shorter sentence, so it's okay to cut them some slack compared to somebody who's going to jail for 30 years. On the other hand, you could think, well, This person is in our system, okay, innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, they've been proven guilty, but also, you know, they also have an appeal pending and people's rights to an appeal are not as, you know, complete and 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 absolute as uh, somebody who's not yet been convicted. But we still think of them as having a window of opportunity, a chance to get out here. So on the other hand, maybe you should treat everybody this way. But you do have to worry about the the reality of uh, the other goals of incarceration. Some of the goals of incarceration are to get somebody off the street so they can't harm again. And uh, you might uh, have to take that into account. Is this the kind of person who's going to do what they did again in that five-month interim or 10-month interim while we wait for an appeal? Uh, probably not it in is, Jesse's case. It's a tough issue because there's this inherent difficulty in the either the civil litigation or, or criminal justice system. Namely, you get a decision which statistically is likely to be upheld. Most appeals fail, but you never know. Right. So you get a decision and you have to deal with the fact that maybe it will get flipped around completely. And in the meantime, well, what do you do about the person? Let's take, for example, a civil situation. If you... Um, 
if you are sued for a bunch of money and you lose a bunch of money, right. you may appeal, but you have to post a bond. Yeah. So you're not free to go off and, you know, buy the Queen Mary or, or, right, or right. do whatever Blow you the money want. And make Blow it the money. Yeah. So and then what happens a year, two, three years down the road when it's totally reversed and you didn't do anything wrong, you haven't had the use of that money. Similarly, now let's go to the criminal justice side. The other end of, of the seriousness spectrum, one might say, is capital punishment cases, sure. the worst of the worst. Some yeah. horrendous serial killer is convicted. I don't have much sympathy for guys on death row, but I do know they, as you say, have the right to appeal. I also know because we don't have enough people qualified to defend people on death row, yeah. it takes five years on average before a guy on death row, after his conviction, first shakes the hand of his lawyer. Right. His, because, you know, there, no woman would be convicted Very of a capital few. crime. Very it few. just didn't happen. Yeah. Right. Anyway, I mean, the, to me, that's, you know, again... Can't work up a lot of sympathy for these guys. But. I know that statistically, when the dust settles, when the century is over, we're going to find that the vast, vast majority of them really were guilty. But five years? And what if he does uh, get it turned around? What if it turns out, you know, mistaken identity yeah. or whatever? And, oh, well, we're sorry. You know, those first five years, you yeah. sat there on death row. Yeah. Although death row, you know, you've got better TV privileges than the general population. Oh, nice. That's yeah. Good. yeah. Yeah, it really, it, it really does... Uh, force us to ask some hard questions about uh, what is an unfixable, uh, you know, unwritable wrong, right? What is, what is some, uh, some harm that is uh, ir irrevocable? If you, um, if you say, well, death is permanent, so we better not execute somebody until he has all his appeals, obviously, but he can rot in jail in the meantime. You're saying that that person's five years of their life sitting around waiting for the right to appeal to be exercised means that they can't get those five years back in any way. And that doesn't matter that they have to rot there while waiting for the appeal. It's a tragic reality. Yeah. We have to figure out what to do in those interim five well, years. I think what we do is we get our checkbook out. And I sure. think it works both ways, just as we should pay more money mm -hmm. to make sure people are qualified in, in sufficient numbers that you don't have to wait for five years. Yeah. Also, at the other end, um, I think if we feel that there we have criminals in hand and we really feel they should be incarcerated, but doggone it, we're out of money, so we're going to release them early. That's a bad idea. I think we ought to write the check and build the new prison and keep them in as long as the system says they should be kept yeah. in. Now, you and I disagree on the idea of how many people should be incarcerated, how many crimes are out there that really are worthy of, of punishment in the form of incarceration or capital punishment. I think there are zero that are deserving of capital punishment. I think it's a flawed concept. But I will agree with you that the idea of letting people out of uh, prison early based on monetary concerns seems silly on its face. But the reality is that we so over incarcerate people that letting any amount of people out of prison is almost certainly going to be a net good for society until we get to the absolute worst of the worst bottom of the barrel, the, you know, the worst 5% or whatever who are current, uh, currently rotting in prison. I think if you threw open the doors of our jails and prisons and let out 95% of people uh, tomorrow, we'd be a better country for it. Well, I'm going to send you some recidivism statistics. 
statistics. And after you look at them, you know, we can have a further conversation. When we come back, our top big story of the week, will the uh, Supreme Court uh, Judge Jackson hearing be smooth sailing or choppy waters? But first, Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers. Check us out on your podcast platform of choice. That's usually Apple Podcasts for most of you, but it could be anything else, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, or whatever Um, one you frequent and make sure that you're not just pulling us down one episode at a time but you're clicking that subscribe button and while you're there leave us a rating or a comment so that we can check it out and feel good about ourselves we'll be right back This is Too Many Lawyers I'm Royal Oaks and I'm Connor Oaks So the Republicans Connor um they are kind of concerned about the appearance of racism in terms of opposing Judge <laughs> Jackson's nomination to the Supreme yeah. Court. Yeah. But apparently, apparently they feel they have some ammunition to lob. Uh, Monday morning, uh, which will be two days before this podcast drops on this coming Wednesday, Monday morning opening statements uh, by the nominee, Judge Jackson, and the panel members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then Tuesday, the, the fireworks start with questions to the nominee. And Senator John uh, Josh Hawley of Missouri, uh, you'll recall he's, uh, he's a bit of a Trumpster. Uh, He is apparently going to be arguing that Judge Jackson has shown herself to be lenient in sentencing some sex offenders and those convicted of possessing child pornography. Uh, At the same time, Senator Mitch McConnell, you've heard of him, right? Once Uh, or twice. Republican of Kentucky and the minority leader. He has doubled down on his suggestion that Jackson's experience as a public defender could influence her view of the law and lead her to favor criminal defendants. He said her supporters look at her resume and deduce a special empathy for criminals, McConnell said. He said, I guess that means that government prosecutors and innocent crime victims start each trial at a disadvantage. So um, from your perspective, uh, do you expect a lot of fireworks? And do you think that uh, it's really going to be dangerous for the Republicans to push hard against Judge Jackson? Do you think in the midterms uh, they could be portrayed by their opponents as racists? No, I don't think that that will be. I think that they're going to carefully avoid um, the appearance of racism and uh, the sort of arguments that would draw that criticism from mainstream media commentators, op-ed uh, columns uh, around around this country. They're very racist, no doubt, absolutely. But they're going to av- uh, successfully avoid the appearance of racism. Um, you don't think Mitt Romney's racist? Uh, of course he is. So whoa, uh, whoa, whoa! But, <laughs> so am I? Absolutely. It's it's okay. It's uh, it's just something you've well, got. As long to as you've identify added that yourself, caveat, okay. Identify by yourself and 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 work to destroy. Uh, but it's uh, it's inherent in our system. And uh, uh, rich old white Republican uh, elected officials in this country absolutely are racist. These arguments are hilarious. They're they're on their face ridiculous. Uh, The idea that somebody who has been a public defender in the past is as a result unqualified because they are going to be too soft on criminals portrays the criminal legal system in this country and reveals that you view the criminal legal system in this country as simply a way of punishing the people who come in front of it. The assumption is that they're guilty, that they should be punished, that punishment is inherently morally good, that that is the best way to, to solve our, our problems in our societies, to incarcerate people or uh, or otherwise punish them using the criminal legal system. The idea that the public defender is somehow uh, the enemy of that system, that they're the, the, the weak link or that they're Uh, biased by their representation, uh, belies uh, uh, your opinion, uh, Josh Hawley's opinion, Mitch McConnell's opinion, uh, other people's opinion, that somehow a public defender is morally bankrupt, is a liar, is defending criminals in order to uh, get them 
off in order to, you know, get have more crimes be committed out there in the world. That's not how it works. We have a system that attempts to vindicate the rights of innocent people and protect the rights of guilty people. Guilty people have rights. They have the right to representation. They have the right to a fair and just punishment that reflects the crime. It's proportional to the crimes that they committed. And the right to rehabilitation and to reemerge and reenter society and, you know, uh, avail themselves of all its benefits. One of the benefits that we all have is the, the existence of public defenders. And we all should feel, you know, free to go out there and be a public defender. And you, by being a public defender, protect the rights of innocent people and guilty people. And the idea that someone would, after a life of service, public service, of being a public defender, would come up for the, 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 a job on the highest court of the land. And, and then have people say, oh, yeah, your experience as a judge, the putting people behind bars, uh, that doesn't disqualify you. Well, but your experience as a public defender trying to exonerate people, that does disqualify you. It absolutely uh, reveals that people's assumption is if you end up in a courtroom, you're guilty. If you're a criminal, you're a bad person. So you started out saying... You started out saying you didn't think the Republicans really were at great risk of being portrayed as no, racist. No, because the whole media uh, in this country and, and sort of the mainstream also thinks anybody accused of a crime is guilty. Anybody punished of a crime is morally tainted forever. So All you think the fact mainstream people. media is left of center is a myth? No, it's that the left of center in America is very far right. Left of center in America, yeah, they're very left. The, the mainstream media is very left of the conservatives, but that's because the conservatives in America are so off, far off the freaking deep end, so wild and crazy, so Trump's, you know, tainted and, you know, hardcore on the end of you know, fiscal and social libertarianism, you know, destroy all government control, uh, pro-capitalist, well, well, capital I, anti-worker. I, I hear what you're saying, but let me let me get to, to my point that I was trying to make there. Yeah. I, I think the Republicans do face some exposure for this reason. When Mitch McConnell says she uh, look at her resume, I deduce a special empathy for criminals. If the Republicans come across in this hearing like they're just blowing smoke, like they're focusing on the fact that she was once a public defender, but have no reason to really say that she has some inherent bias. Because as you yeah. say, everybody would acknowledge, of course, we want public defenders. Yeah. But Absolutely. if so, if the Republicans, if there's no there there in terms of what they're lobbing at her, right. then I think they can be seen by most people centrists in America as, I think they were just opposing her because she was black. As On the other hand, if she's got something, if they've got something up their sleeve, some writing or or some opinion yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes her look bad, then, you know, maybe they've made their points. They're going to lose at the end of the day yeah. because, you know, the, the mansions and so on are not going to vote against her. Right. So she's going to be confirmed. She's right. already been voted for three times by the by the U.S. Senate. Yeah, but I don't see it that way because I think the vast center of America hates criminals and hates public defenders. They see judges and cops as heroes. They think that they are the, uh, infallible and perfect. They think that they keep us all safe. And they think that public defenders are basically the way you see them in uh, movies, which is, and TV, incompetent, overworked to the point of ineptitude and malpractice at every turn, or actively morally compromised and pro-crime and pro-criminal, just trying to get people back out there on the street. They're, 
there is so little sympathy for and understanding of the role of the public defender in our society that I think the Republicans will suffer absolutely no consequence from lobbying the fiercest and most aggressive attacks possible against her on the basis that she in the past represented people who committed crimes. That is, I mean, there is no group in our society more hated than lawyers. Well, not true at all, but you know what I mean? And public defenders are most reviled of all because the vast middle of America is pretty conservative on concepts of public safety. They're very scared. They're very, you know, fearful of crime because they've been fed a steady diet of fear and 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 danger and this, you know, uh, harsh world syndrome, scary world, mean worlds rather, mean world syndrome from media and politicians on both sides, but mostly conservatives for years. So let's shift gears and talk in terms of the Judge Jackson nomination uh, with respect to the issue of the legitimacy of the judiciary. And the mm-hmm. reason I phrase it that way is there was an interesting uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed this week by somebody with the American Enterprise Institute, a mm. conservative think tank. And, and they said the big question is whether the judiciary is legitimate. Now, Liz Warren wrote an op-ed uh, piece uh, in Washington Post, I think, a few months ago, saying that the conservative majority is undermining the legitimacy of every action the current court takes. And a couple of years ago, she uh, and several of her senators filed a friend of the court brief uh, in a gun case saying the court is not well. It should be restructured. And uh, Representative Hakeem Jeffries, who's a chair of the House Democrat Caucus, he said that Supreme Court majority has zero legitimacy. And so the author of this op-ed piece said it is hugely important to maintain the fact and the image of legitimacy in the judiciary to not look like a super legislature. And he quoted Alexander Hamilton, who said that the court sometimes needs to declare laws unconstitutional, but it also needs to restrain itself because you should only declare the laws unconstitutional if there's no reasonable way to interpret the law. Otherwise, the surest way to lose the court's legitimacy, Hamilton said, would be for justices to substitute their own pleasure for the Constitution and lawful statutes. And now we've seen impeachable Warren signs in the, in the West and the South in the 1960s. We, we saw FDR trying to pack the Supreme Court. Uh, So I I think it comes down to, in terms of his point, uh, should we expect any sort of profound questions and answers in this hearing uh, that might zero in on on the legitimacy of the judiciary? Or is it just going to be more double talk and obfuscation at all? I can't talk about that issue because, you know, that might come up in a a case I'd have to rule on. I mean, that will be the contents of this hearing with all in all likelihood, because that is the path of least resistance for any nominee is to say less and simply uh, waltz uh, onto the court. It is you know, very unlikely in my mind. Sounds undignified that we to get, waltz in that robe true, onto the yeah. court. You wouldn't be able to see the fancy footwork anyway. It's very unlikely we're going to see a screaming, I like beer, Kavanaugh moment in this sort of uh, situation. The fireworks, uh, they're not necessary because there are no legitimate uh, complaints uh, about uh, Judge Jackson, Justice Jackson, and she's probably going to be confirmed uh, in a, a pretty a, in pretty quick and easy manner, especially since her nomination doesn't even change the ideological balance of the court. So it's not particularly uh, important. But this question of the legitimacy of uh, the court, the le- maintaining the legitimacy of the court is extremely important for those who benefit from the legitimacy of the court. Maintaining the legitimacy of the court and the judiciary in the minds of the American people and around the world 
and the other branches of government is super important for people who are currently benefiting from the 6-3 supermajority conservatives and who generally benefit from uh, a Supreme Court that strikes down um, individual uh, you know, rights, strikes down civil rights legislation, uh, stops any progressive attempt to make the world a better place, um, you know, ahead of public opinion, certainly, uh, with rare exception, uh, but also way behind uh, public opinion. The legitimacy of the court is only an inherent good if the court is doing good things and making the country a better place. If instead, we already do actually have uh, inherently political human animals running around on the court in robes, pretending to be arbiters of justice above the fray, only calling balls and strikes, only doing, you know, that which is some in some notion correct because of, of this made up notion of constitutionality and the way that we interpret uh, uh, laws as in relation to this old, extremely flawed and incomplete document, the Constitution. If we think and we give those people legitimacy and we put them on a pedestal and then when they make bad decisions that harm us all, we say, oh, well, we can't do anything about that because they're wearing the robes and they're sitting up very high and they're very old. If we do that, we are harming ourselves and we're harming this country. We should only be giving legitimacy to institutions that better our country, that make this a better place to live, make uh, you know, Americans happier and healthier. If you forfeit that, if you give that up, you forfeit your legitimacy. If you aren't making the world a better place, if you aren't doing your job, you're not legitimate. If the cops are killing people, then they shouldn't be the cops and we shouldn't revere them or put them on a pedestal. And it's the same with justices. When we come back, should we stop asking jurors about really private stuff? Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So, Connor, Ghislaine Maxwell's conviction several weeks ago. Um, some people think maybe it's a little bit in jeopardy because juror number 50 was asked in the questionnaire, have you or a friend or a family member ever been a victim of sexual assault or sexual harassment? And he said, no. Now he says, well, I kind of just ran through that, you know. A little bit. Kind of kind of busy, just forgot. Uh, then he told his fellow jurors, yes, he in fact had been abused. And so, of course, Maxwell's lawyer won a new trial. Um, it was an op-ed piece by a former prosecutor uh, op-ed in the New York Times this week saying, you know, we want impartial jurors, but let's not ask these kind of uh, probing questions because a few reasons. First, uh, she points out sexual violence is extremely pervasive. One in five American women will experience rape or attempted rape at some time in their lives to say nothing of other sorts of assault. One in four American men will experience some form of sexual violence. My reaction to that is, um, is this a reason not to ask jurors about it? I mean, yes, it's a terrible problem. Mm. It's also a terrible problem if you're on trial, whether it's a civil or criminal case, and there are some stealth jurors in there who really hate you and have a big bias against Connor for some reason. And if your lawyer isn't allowed to ask a lot of important, serious, maybe sensitive questions to, to get those bad jurors off the panel. It is a problem if you have jurors with bias. And the real question in, in that we should be asking ourselves, uh, you've gotten to the heart of it there, uh, is that we have to know whether these jurors can sit in judgment in a case where their own personal experiences inform their 
uh, judgment. And without getting the underlying facts, how can we do that? I mean, because this this op-ed author is arguing, essentially, let's trust them. Let's not get the details. Let's have the judge really mm. grill them about, now, are you sure you can be fair and impartial? You know, having tried a bunch of cases and seen jurors who maybe weren't totally forthcoming, I'd be very worried about whether that's going to guarantee fairness. And I wonder if instead of you know, splashing it in the newspapers, maybe a compromise would be let uh, the lawyers and the judge ask all the super sensitive questions they want, but do it behind closed doors. And right. may, maybe if we have to release it for public transparency and yeah. the media have rights, and I've argued for, for the media to have transparency and see see yeah. confidential sealed stuff, maybe after the case is over. But at least somehow, some way, get the true facts, because I don't think we can trust people. We can't tell them to, trust them to tell the truth, and we can't trust them to say, oh, yes, I will be impartial. I promise. I promise. I mean, you're right that people will always say if they want to be on a jury, I can be impartial um, and we can't trust them not to lie. But that kind of gets to the underlying. Well, then it's not even an issue, because if somebody really wants to be on the jury and is really willing to lie to the judge about it, then they probably are going to be able to lie and get on the jury as a stealth juror anyway. The lawyers are going to know nothing about it. And or maybe the lawyers should be able to strike them with a peremptory challenge. You know, if even if there's no legitimate basis for excusing them for cause, you know, you get your eight usually uh, free strikes. So shouldn't the defense lawyer be uh, allowed to know that, oh, this juror has been a victim of sexual assault three times, and you know, even if she convinces the judge she will be impartial, yeah. what about a peremptory challenge? Yeah, this this is certainly, yeah, it, it, is, a, it, it is an issue of, uh, of two types, right? One for cause challenges and one peremptory, meaning just up to the uh, lawyer they you get and the defendant, they get to make that decision, plaintiff, uh, the state gets to use peremptories as well. But the... The, the, the first question about whether you should be able to strike somebody for cause because they ha have a, uh, an experience uh, in their life that you believe that is relevant and that you believe um, makes them biased. We all agree, I think, as a society generally, that you should be able to strike some people on the basis of uh, bias. I don't think there's anybody out there who says oh, no jury selection necessary, just throw people in the box. And it doesn't matter if they're an oil company CEO, they can sit in judgment of an oil company's uh, lawsuit. I mean, that is a serious you know, issue that you would say, well, this person is probably too uh, too close to the issue. But the, the, the question specifically about sexual uh, assault or sexual abuse survivors, when you, when you have such a large population in this country, because we're talking about this country and our jurors in this country, that suffer from uh, sexual abuse and sexual violence of, of all different forms, um, or just harassment, um, when such a large portion of the population, say, of the female population, has been the victim of this, and it's such a pervasive issue in our society, it becomes a problem of, can't, are you striking so many women statistically that now women don't have the right to sit on a jury and that uh, that participants in lawsuits don't have a right to have women on their juries, uh, be, either the state or the defense, because um, they have been victims uh, uh, of sexual assault. And I mean, that it go, basically goes to the question, say you had a, a lawsuit about car accidents, and if you could just strike anybody who had ever been in a car accident, then 
you'd basically have nobody left on the jury panel <laughs> and you'd be able to sculpt the perfect jury of just weirdo hermits who live in a cabin in the woods. Hey, they might be really good drivers. Yeah, and and really good. But even really good drivers get hit. I mean, it's rare, right? And there are other examples, right? You could, you could come um, in even more universal experience. You know, you could deal with, well, what if it was like a, a lawsuit about about uh, something bad that happened in a public school and the one of the sides was trying to strike everybody who'd ever attended a public school right at a certain point attending a public school might be a massively formative experience right you might have gone through seven years of high school and middle school and six years of uh, of elementary school and at the end of or seven so at the end of it you're 14 or 15 years deep in the public education system maybe you're indoctrinated brainwashed by how great it is or maybe you think it's a horrible terrible system because you had horrible experiences there and you were bullied every single day and you know it it, it made you want to go live in the woods and be a weirdo hermit yeah but i mean there are outliers i mean if, if if you're a columbine school shooting survivor the bullet grazed your uh, pompadour but right. you survived and your yeah. friends were killed yeah. and now what a weird coincidence you're on the potential jury panel yeah. in a, a school shooting yeah wouldn't you want to know if that yeah. person was a school shooting and near victim our current system allows a lot of uh, you know, the, the notion of asking people about kind of anything even these intensely personal questions um, that that you know presumably cause some psychic distress, uh, mental distress to the the jurors being asked this, and open the door to abuse of di- the disqualification system, such that you know too many people are disqualified. That is one uh, con- thought, one consideration on that one end. And on the other end, you have the rights of defendants, which are very important to uh, get rid of biased jurors, and that's a very difficult uh, line to walk. It's a very difficult, you know, uh, scales of justice to balance. But it, I can see why somebody might write this op-ed and say we shouldn't be able to ask these questions because uh, the, the 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 outcomes of asking those questions don't actually turn out better. Like it doesn't actually we don't actually get better jurors if we ask these invasive personal probing questions. Now maybe they maybe we do right. I, I do voir dire as a lawyer. I invade people's personal lives and ask them deeply personal questions. I say, have you been in a horrible accident where you were maimed? I have had jurors say, yes, I, my foot was severed in an accident and then reattached by a, a, a doctor. And I, I'll tell you, I, maybe maybe I should save this for a, for a, a story time at the, end of, <laughs> a, at the end of the pod. But I had a juror say, my foot was severed and reattached by the expert doctor who's going to testify in this case, Whoa. he was my surgeon and he saved my foot. Four surgeons said they couldn't save my foot. And he was the fifth surgeon who said he could save my foot. And I had to go to the judge and say, are you kidding me? Get rid of her, please. Did the other She's- side's lawyer have the audacity oh, to yeah. argue in favor of keeping this jury? Oh, yeah, I think she'll be fine. Oh, I mean, she said she, said she could be, <laughs> she said she could be balanced. She's to be honest. I'm going, oh, my God, this is the worst juror in the universe. So obviously <laughs> we got her kicked off the jury, thankfully, because obviously she was going to be too biased because this man... She hero worshipped the man who saved her foot. But yeah, that juror is a very dangerous juror. And I had to ask very probing personal questions about this person's medical history to find that out. So I get it. But I understand why someone might, might (laughs) zoom out, cite some studies and say, 
actually finding out that, uh, you know, women on the panel have been the victims of sexual abuse just allows you to strike all the women, right? That might be the case. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, uh, we're going to cut uh, out of today's uh, episode, the corporate diversity issue. We'll resume. It's like an evergreen topic. Yeah, evergreen It's topic. like the jungle yeah. primary, the primary with yeah, exactly. Ken Jeffries. Yeah, exactly. Hello, Ken. For the longtime listeners, yeah. E- exactly right. Uh, so instead, we are going to go straight to Guess the Verdict, America's yes. favorite game show. Now, I, I teased it, Connor, as the case of the sinister schnauzer, but yeah, well, <laughs> I realized... A more appropriate topic uh, or title would be the case of the pernicious poodle. Mm. Are you ready for this That's real good. live case? I'm you going to guess the outcome. Absolutely. And if you uh, get it right, you get the bell. Got it. I'm excited. That's, that's a pretty big reward. All right. Mm-hmm. So here are the facts. A Missouri man arrived home to find his wife in the arms of her lover. A lot of people don't like that word lover. You know, it makes them uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, a little no, paramour, whatever. Sure. Boyfriend, girlfriend. So the husband decides this is the time to shoot the lover to death. So that's what he does. We've all been there. So, hmm? What? So the husband <laughs> said, what? Wait, what? So the husband turns to his wife and says, honey, I, why would he call her honey at this sure, point? I guess yeah. it's sort of a knee-jerk force of habit thing. Honey, I'm in a lot of trouble. <laughs> You've got to tell them the dog did it. Uh, the couple then claimed that their did large... Did he kill him with his teeth? Did he, <laughs> did he bite him to death? Mm, I don't think so. Then so I, the, I don't know if that's going to fly. The, the couple claims to the cops that their large poodle caught its paw in the trigger of a gun, knocking the gun to the floor, right. causing it to discharge into the dislarge, heart of the lover. Discharge the marble, which rolled down the yeah. dresser, which fell onto a spoon, which flipped through the air, so, which landed on the 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 the... the, the, the Gun and exploded. It's yes. ironic that it would have gone to the heart of the lover, but but it did. So on cross-examination at the trial, uh, the wife changes her story. She decides to tell, tell the, the truth. Tell the truth. Yeah. whole truth. Nothing about the truth. That's right. So you get uh, the very difficult project here of guessing who won <laughs> at the trial. Uh, I appreciate you. Did can... the jury buy the husband's unorthodox story about the case of the pernicious poodle? I appreciate you giving me a softball every yeah. once in a while. Yeah. I need, I need the, I need the wins. You know, <laughs> my percentage is not perfect. I need to keep that batting average up. Uh, I'm going to say husband rots in prison. Uh, you, you, you're going to have a hard sell to the jury that it was that it was uh, a Fido who committed uh, the the infidelity, or rather, of uh, the murder of the. Uh, oh, so you're saying I should have called this the case of the felonious Fido? Ooh, that would have been really good. You're really? absolutely right. You Fi- got it right. The case of the case of Fido, the fall guy. He didn't actually <laughs> actually commit any felonies. Here. Right. Poor Fido is getting painted with a terrible brush. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, good job, Connor. You Thank got you. the bell. You got the the correct answer. Yes. And yet another episode of Guess the Verdict. So finally, we have come to the conclusion of the legal part of the legal podcast. Now we turn to our new feature, Stories I'd Tell My Friends If I Had Any. To clarify, I have several stories. So today, my story, Connor, has to do, well, it involves you, actually. Ooh. It uh, has to do I love with stories that involve me. Learning ping pong from a champion. So ping pong is a big deal in our family. My parents actually met playing ping pong back in the 1940s, back in the day. So when I was growing up, we had a table in the backyard and everybody loved to play. So uh, when you and your sisters came along, Connor, I decided, well, you know, we're going to play ping pong. We got the table and everybody's learning. And then I realized I looked at the newspaper one day, um, Pastina Star News, I think it was, um, Wei Wang 
is a resident of, of uh, Pasadena. This is in the 90s. And she was a rather famous uh, ping pong player. A storied Yes. Player. She uh, started out, uh, she lived in China, in Beijing. She was one of the top junior players in China. Uh, but they have a deal over there in uh, communist China in uh, connection with table tennis. If you are not absolutely elite like Tom Brady once in a generation, mm-hmm. they think thank you and give you a lovely parting gift when you're about 21. They retire you wow. because they want to, they start uh, way, the way next generation told moving me, up. Yeah. yeah she, she told me they, they have two year olds and they put them, have, have them stand on a soapbox. Sure. And yeah, so that's why they've won all the gold medals at all the Olympic games for the last several decades. Yeah. China is where it's at. So she was really, really good, but she wasn't Tom Brady. And so she and her mother come over to America. And what do you know? She winds up being the United States singles ping pong champion in 1995. uh, No, in 1990. And then she won the doubles championship in America in 92 and 95. And she goes to the Olympics for America because communist China had abandoned her, thrown her under the bus. So she's terrific. And I read about her, the fact that she's got this ping pong club. She lives there Uh in Pasadena. So I call her up and I say, would you, uh, would you take a look at uh, my three kids and, and train them, give them a couple, them couple, into less, ping pong co- monsters? couple of lessons and uh, you may have a dim memory. I know right. you were pretty young. But, yeah. Uh, so so I, it's, a, it's a formative memory. It's one of my core memories. This, yeah. or my earliest, one of my earliest memories is, is getting uh, coaching from somebody who, uh, well, I mean, I had no idea how Wei good Wang. she was at the time, but you surpounded it into us as we mm-hmm. grew up that you, know, you were taught by the champion, U.S. champion Wei Wang. That's right. And so, of course, uh, ping pong has been, you know, our family sport. And you've continued that to the next generation. Uh, it's been our family sport. And, and now Claire's kids, uh, your daughter's kids, uh, mm-hmm. my sister's kids uh, are, are now ping pong fiends as well, despite being, you know, uh, yeah. however old they are, six so, and four. So, right? so that's uh, the beginning and the end of the story. Now, tell, let me tell the middle chapter of the story. Uh, we fast forward from the 90s when you and your sisters got the lessons from Wei Wang. Uh, fast forward to 2005, Claire is uh, starting college up at uh, Cal. I'm up there for parents weekend and I'm wandering around campus, you know, trying to find Sather Gate and so on. And I wander into the gymnasium there at Berkeley. Uh-huh. And what do I see but several ping pong tables set up and a bunch of young women, stu- female students are just slamming it back and forth. I mean, they're just killers. They're yeah. doing great. And some of them are actually gluing the rubber onto their paddle. And Hardcore. The, oh, the glue smells terrible and they're doing it just <laughs> You know, squeezing out the bubbles. Right. And over in the corner, I see him. He is the sensei, the nice. coach. Yeah. He is, he's barking out orders to them. Sure. And he's telling them all. And this is an elite group. And oh, yeah. So, it's Berkeley. It's yeah. a great school. They have competitive every kind of sport. Yeah. So I just wander up to, I probably had a churro on one hand and a Dr. Pepper in the other. <laughs> so I just kind of munching away. I say, hey, coach. Uh, hey, you know, uh, my daughter is just starting here at Berkeley and uh, she likes to play ping pong. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think? Shall I send her down? And he looks at me, looks up and down uh, like very you're, disdainfully at the churro. Like dog crap on the bottom of his shoe exactly and he says mm, i'm sorry i just don't think so these players are at a very elite level right, okay, right, it's right. nice that your daughter plays <laughs> if you could leave now it would be so nice if you weren't here yeah that's i don't the, know if he's at that but that was that's the essentially tone. that was the tone so then i just take a deep breath and i say well you know she trained under Wei wang <gasps> 
His eyes brighten. <laughs> oh, his face lights up. Wei Wang, Wei Wang, Wei Wang. I must see your daughter. Bring her here. I mean, because Wei Wang yeah. is like the Tom Brady. Royalty. Absolutely. Okay. And I say, oh, well, thanks. I'll talk to Clara. See you later. And I go off munching my churro. Yeah. So I find Clara. Oh, honey, good news. Uh, the, the coach of the girls ping pong team. And I explain the whole situation and the, with the glue and yeah, the rubber yeah, yeah, and yeah. the girls that are slamming the ball. Right. And Clara says, I'm never getting within 100 yards yeah. of that coach. Yeah, and yeah. she never now did. did. If you hadn't done this, she probably would have been a world-class Berkeley ping pong player. But she was so embarrassed that you're you right. went name-dropped way uh, that right. then Claire had an impossible standard to meet. She was never going to be able to live up to this guy's notion of who Claire could have been. Claire should have been a great ping pong player for three months and then dropped away Wang and gotten like the captainship out of it. So I didn't think of it that way, uh, but you're probably right. <laughs> so now the final chapter to the story. The never-ending story. Um, Claire has a, a grandson, seven-year-old grandson, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? It'd be nice to, to continue the family tradition. Why don't they find out if Wei Wang is still giving lessons to children? Yeah. And sure enough, she is. And so I, I take little Ben down there, and you know, I've got some nice video of it. And then you and I went down, and uh, Wei Wang gave us a lesson. And I told uh, Wei Wang the whole story about uh, what a legendary, famous person she is. So I think it, you know, it had a happy ending. Uh, I don't, I don't think we're going to be making the Olympic team anytime soon. But maybe Claire's uh, son, my yeah. grandson, will. Next step. That would be the next step. And the next podcast will be next week. We hope you tune in and uh, hope you have a great week. Uh, we'll wish Judge Jackson a good fortune and hope uh, that she and Josh Holly at the end of the day can have a beer and yeah. shake hands. Yeah. Maybe that'll yeah. happen. Maybe. See you next time. 